Real Impact is the podcast of Performance Development Group of Malvern, Pennsylvania. In each episode, we talk with colleagues and experts about the talent development challenges facing business today. My name is Rich Mesh, and welcome to Real Impact. Why is measuring the impact of learning so difficult? In a recent survey, nearly 70% of respondents said the inability to measure learning impact was impeding the achievement of strategic goals. We'll discuss the challenges of measurement with Will Tallheimer, a thought leader who created his own measurement model. We are talking today to Dr. Will Tallheimer. Will is a well-known thought leader in the performance improvement space, including quite a bit of focus on the measurement of learning impact. He has made a career of debunking learning myths and focusing on research-based methods, and not for nothing, he created his own learning measurement model, the Learning Transfer Evaluation Model, which we will no doubt dive into as part of our conversation. Will Tallheimer, welcome to Real Impact. (laughs) Thank you, Rich. And, you know, I just a couple of things. One thing you said, not for nothing. No, it, it actually was for nothing because um, I gave it away for free on the website and uh, people use it. And then I hear about it later. But sort of, a, you know, I've been a bad business person for a long time. And there's just another example. And the other thing, Rich, you, you know, in my little introduction there, uh, you didn't mention the most important contribution I ever made to the learning and development industry. I have a feeling I know where this is going, Will. <laughs> uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know my thing I'm most proud of is hiring Rich Mesh into the industry. So if, if anyone is sick to death of these podcasts, you know who to blame. I never would have been here were it not for Will Tallheimer. <laughs> uh, all right. What are we going to talk about? Well, let me, let me start with a, a little bit of a softball to get you warmed up here, Will. So, Learning measurement is just an utter disaster. I mean, sometimes I think it doesn't work at all. So easy question. Why is learning measurement such a mess? <laughs> okay. So you know, first of all, let's, let's talk about what's messy about it. Number one, we tend to measure things like uh, attendance and completion rates. And we use smile sheets that are ineffective and, you know, get us data that's not really relevant to whether the learning's effective or not. So we got those issues. Um, We got people uh, sharing a lot of fancy looking dashboards that have really bad data underneath, but it looks beautiful and people buy into it. What am I missing, Rich? Is there anything else you could think of? So I think you hit some good points, Will. One of the things that has always shocked me about learning measurement is sometimes we measure whether or not people showed up. And and that might be great if you're like, you know, measuring attendance at a football game, but it doesn't really mean much when it comes to learning and development. But I think there's another extreme on the other side, which is people want to measure. They say, we sent people to a training course. We sent salespeople to a training course. And now we want to know why sales isn't higher because we train them. And there seems to be a missing part in that equation. <laughs> so a lot of people like, well, okay, so we, we, uh, we sent folks to sales training. We expect their sales to go up. But, you know, there's a little bit of an issue there. And that is that, well, how do we know that it's the actual training that made a difference? Maybe um, they got a better manager. Maybe they got some coaching. 
maybe the economy picked up. So maybe they would have done even better if we had done a different type of training. It's just, you know, human learning is complex. Attaching measurement to it is even more complex. So, you know, the, the answer to your question is, why is it messy? One reason is it's just really complicated and it's not easy to uh, get data that's clean enough so we can make meaningful decisions out of it. Um, number two, organizations don't seem to want to pay for it. They don't see the value in it. We as L&D professionals have not been good enough about uh, educating our stakeholders about the value of measurement. Um, and, and let's just, let me be explicit. Well, there's three reasons we measure. One, to sort of prove that we've got the results we want. Number two is we measure to support learners and learning. And number three, we measure to improve what we're doing. To me, and when I talk to senior learning people, uh, most of them are focused on the third one. How do we improve what we're doing? How do we create the most effective learning interventions that we can? If we don't have good feedback loops, then we're going to be creating stuff uh, continually that's not as effective as it might be. So number one, we want to do it to, to, to get that information. Now, why so messy? Well, organizations don't want to pay for that. We don't educate about that. Also, some of us are a little bit uh, shy about getting good results, you know? Something I'll add to that is I think there's a, a lack of intellectual curiosity. I think in some cases, people don't really want to know what the answer is. They're afraid that if the answer is that uh, people didn't really improve as a result of training, that's going to make the training department look bad. And they don't want to see that on the record. And the flip side is true as well. If sales go up and there was training, the training department is perfectly happy to have everyone believe that sales went up because of training, even if there's no actual evidence that that's true. I think it's worse than lack of intellectual curiosity. I think it's being afraid of the reality. And I've, I've, you know, I've had people, well, we want to do this thing. Okay, great. Let's do some evaluation. Oh, well, maybe we shouldn't look at that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing, another reason why we don't go deeper with our evaluation is that we're getting evaluation results and they look pretty good, right? We get our smile sheets. We use Likert scales. We put them on a five-point scale. Uh, we get 4.2s, 4.5s. You know, that looks pretty good. Uh, why rock the boat? And so we feel like we're doing learning measurement. And so because we're doing that, you know, there's not that much incentive or emphasis on doing better evaluation. I think that keeps us stuck. The other reason why we're doing bad evaluation is we have a dominant evaluation model out there, the Kirkpatrick-Kitzel four-level model. Most people call it their Kirkpatrick model. Turns out that Raymond Kitzel was the one that created the idea, so that's why I try to remember to call it the Kirkpatrick could sell model, say that really quickly. So it's been out there, it's dominant. People think about it, uh, think about learning evaluation in those terms, but that model in and of itself has some weaknesses. That's interesting because uh, even today, the, the Kirkpatrick model has been with us for a very, very long time, but even today, uh, when you talk to a lot of learning leaders, they're still very attached to the Kirkpatrick model. What does the Kirkpatrick model get wrong, in your opinion? Okay, so maybe your listeners don't know what it is. So just really quickly, uh, level one is learner reactions. Level two is learning. Level three is behavior. And level four are results. One of the things you'll notice in the model is that uh, learning is all in one bucket. Well, 
learning can be measured along a continuum. We could measure learning by measuring people's ability to regurgitate trivia, right? Or meaningless information or just recognize information. Or we can go up a little bit, you know, with people's ability to uh, recall meaningful, important knowledge. But we can go further than that. Are they able to make decisions based on what they've learned? Are they able to actually carry out tasks? Can they, you know, do the performance that we're trying to teach them? So all that gets measured in one bucket, learning. So what it means that we do is, oh, we need a level two. Okay, let's do a knowledge check. We (laughs) That pushes us down to sort of the lower levels of learning. And that creates this cycle of incompetence in us as learning professionals. We measure that. And so we build to that. And we build it so that people can answer knowledge questions when we should be building our learning so that people can actually perform, that they can actually make decisions, so they can actually show that they have some task competence. So that's one of the big things. Now, the Kirkpatrick model isn't all bad. It sends some really good messages about our smile sheets, our learner perception should be sort of at a lower level, less important. And it sends a message that, you know, what's really important Um, are also behaviors and results. Those things, you know, that sends a very good message. And the other thing it doesn't do, which I think is a shame, it doesn't sort of um, send a signal to us that measuring attendance and completion rates is not good enough, that measuring just learner participation isn't good enough. Those things are, you know, useful to gather, but you can't validate your learning based on participation, based on attendance. So some good things from the model, some bad things. But overall, I think it's, a, it's been a negative uh, for the field. As the old saying goes, you, you get what you measure. And it sounds like in some cases, maybe not all, but in some cases, the Kirkpatrick model has encouraged people to measure the wrong things. And as a result, builds towards that measurement as opposed to trying to, to build ultimately for the, the success and the performance of the learner. A conversation I've had quite frequently is sometimes I will hear people say, for thousands of years, the sort of seminar didactic method worked great. And suddenly in the last 30 or 40 years, we need you know artificial intelligence and distributed learning and, and all these things. And why do we suddenly need those things now? And I think the answer is because those things didn't exist a thousand years ago. And so it, it never really occurred to anybody to use them. And I wonder to what extent uh, a model with no disrespect to uh, to Mr. Kirkpatrick, a model that was was developed uh, 60 some years ago is not really current to what's possible today. Yeah, well, there is there is some truth to that. And, you know, the model was built back in the 1950s and then began to be popularized in the 60s. And then uh, when Donald Kirkpatrick wrote his book in the 1990s, that's when it really really got popular. I just think about what's happened since 1950s. We've had this amazing revolution about the psychology of learning. We've learned so much about it. Um, one of the things that the Kirkpatrick model is silent about is whether people understand or whether they can remember. When we design learning, we should be thinking, oh, we want to create this comprehension, this understanding, but we also want to go further. We want to help people to be able to remember. We want them to be able to apply as well. And uh, it has no, there's no, there's no sense about remembering in the, in the Kirkpatrick model. So let's talk a little bit about performance because performance seems to get sort of short shrift and certainly in the Kirkpatrick model and and some other models as well. What should we be looking at in trying to identify whether what someone has learned 
is actually going to turn into something they can now do. Let me sort of segue to the LTEM model here because there's yeah there's there's a zillion things we can do do uh, in measuring learning, but it's important to keep it relatively simple. So, um, in 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 LTEM, tier four is measuring knowledge. Tier five is measuring decision making competence, and tier six is measuring task competence. Can you actually do something? And by having that distinction between knowledge and decision-making and t- full task competence, it gives you a sense of, you know, you know, how you might measure that, right? You and I used to build simulations together uh, many, many years ago. And what we did was we gave people very well-crafted, multiple-choice branching simulations um, with a few other elements mixed in. And what we were measuring essentially was decision-making competence. And we did a lot of leadership development stuff. And so if you think about it, we gave people scenarios. We said, okay, what's the best decision? And they made that decision. And so one of the things we taught back then was you as a manager, as a leader, um, should bring your direct reports into decision-making. That probably sounds familiar. <laughs> And okay, so what, and we measured that through the simulation, but what could we have, what what were we missing? Well, we were missing, okay, well, how do you do it? How exactly do you bring people into decision-making? When you are in a meeting to do that, what what body language are you using? What tone of voice are you using? Um, Are you using the right words? Uh, Are you picking out the right words? So we focused on that decision-making competence um, and we weren't doing it for assessment purposes. We were doing it for development purposes. Purposes, but still, what we were, we were, we would have been at a tier five decision-making competence. We were not at the next level of a task competence. Let me ask you this, Will. One of the things uh, I've been focusing on in my own work is what happens to knowledge once it's imparted. In other words, when someone is actually out there performing, how are they reinforced? How are they encouraged? How are they coached? And the example you just shared is a good one because it's one thing to know how to do something. and It's often quite another thing to actually do it. And One of the things I think we often talked about when we were designing leadership simulations is that often people know how to do something, but there are other forces that actually prevent them from doing it, even though they know how. So in a leadership scenario, someone may have learned a model for giving effective feedback, but they still find themselves incapable of giving effective feedback because they lack confidence, because they're intimidated by their employees, because they're afraid they're going to hurt someone's feelings. And, And those things are very difficult difficult to train, but I think they're very key to turning what people know into what they're able to do. So what role do you see things like coaching, reinforcement, encouragement, feedback playing in any kind of measurement model? Well, it's really comes down to when you measure. One of the things that got me interested in measurement in the first place, you know, I was out there doing research-based consulting, you know, telling people how to design their classroom training, their e-learning to be effective based on the science. But then I realized that we have some biases in the way we learn. So we measure right at the end of learning when everything's top of mind. This is a major bias because they've gone up the learning curve. There they are. We measure them right then. Well, if you just wait a few days or a week or a month, they are going to have slid down the forgetting curve. And so part about part of uh, thinking about measurement is when to do it. So certainly if we measure in the training program, 
we have to look at the timing of that, but also what you measure. You know, have we measured them? Um, have we actually made them make decisions? Have we actually made them practice role play? You know, some of the some of the best training is the most challenging training. We we try to simulate as much as possible what people are going to have to do in their work. Now, I think you're really right on to emphasize these things that are coming after training, the coaching, the reinforcement, all those things are related to what we know about the science of transfer. I, I'll give you a link to a, a research review I did a couple of years ago on the on the uh, transfer research, but it talks about things like coaching and support, et cetera. So one of the things you can do, and let's let's go through the time frame. At the end of learning, you can ask the learners to, on a learner survey, you can ask them to anticipate what kind of support they're going to get. Will your manager support you? Will you have job aids? Will your instructor be available for questions, for support? Uh, will you be coached? You can have them anticipate that. And, and that's okay. It's not perfect, but it can send really strong signals. If you do a, uh, an assessment like that and everybody says, no, my manager's not going to support me, well, that can send a signal to the organization to get the managers, the supervisors to begin thinking about, hey, maybe we should be a little bit more supportive um, after the training. Okay, so now you delay it. You delay it a month, and you don't want to delay these assessments too long because the training is you know, likely to have less impact, less measurable. Um, but then you can ask people, particularly, you know, you and I are old leadership training guys, so you can ask people questions about, well, what I want to emphasize is that there's a special opportunity when you do leadership training. You can ask the direct reports how good a leader that, you know, so let's say we train somebody to be a better coach. Okay, they're a manager coach. Yeah, we can go out uh, a month later and we can ask their direct reports, how well has that person been coaching? And we can ask specific questions. We look at the research on coaching to find out what are the most important leverage points. We can develop an assessment on that and then we can get some uh, sense of that. You know, we can measure, we can measure anything, um, although, <laughs> uh, you know, some things are harder to measure than others. Well, and I'd like to, I'd love to get your opinion on something. Uh, back when we were designing simulations, we talked a lot about a concept called intervening variables. And the whole idea of intervening variables is that in between uh, an action, a decision, and an outcome, a whole lot of things happened depending on sort of what the overall health of the organization was. And the more I've thought about this over the years, one of the things I've realized is that when we train, when we ask people to learn, what we really want them to do is adopt a new set of behaviors. And we do that in the belief that that new set of behaviors will drive the metrics that the business cares about. But we don't necessarily have any evidence that's true. So is the ultimate metric of learning not results, but behavior change? And I'm going to throw that out for you. Feel free to disagree with me. No, no, I actually I, I agree with you uh, a lot on this. So I had many times when customers would come to me and say, well, we need a level four. We need tier eight. We need we want to look at ROI. We, we want to look at the main results. And I go, great, let me help. And uh, then we talk about what it's going to take and what are some of the questions that will be raised. And more often than not, I would talk them out of doing a, <laughs> a results analysis because if you do a, like a results analysis, you've got to figure out 
Well, how much of this is due uh, to the training? And then if you do this right way, you're using like randomized controlled trials and you have some learners, you know, you get a bunch of, you get a hundred people that are going to take your training, but you don't give it to all of them. You give it to 50 of them. And then you see, you know, compare the 50 to the 50 that didn't go through it. Maybe you'd give the 50, uh, the training, the other 50, the training later, but there's a lot of complications there. And if you're thinking about a lot of the subjective data, then there's questions about, you know, how valuable the subjective data, the learner said it was great. They said they got results, but are they telling us the truth? So um, I am <laughs> more often than not encouraging people to focus on uh, sort of the interim thing you're talking about, the behavior change. Every once in a while, yeah, it's good to get at the results, you know, for particularly a strategically important initiative that you're undergoing, or just to sort of validate that you're general methods are working, but for the most part, um, the behavior change is uh, more valuable. Don't just focus on the behavior change because it's the, let's think of it this way. We give a learning program. All right, so what what are the causal results there? Okay, maybe the learners uh, understand the concepts, but then they have to be able to remember them later. Then they have to be motivated to apply them. Then they have to apply them and they have to overcome obstacles. Then we say that the behavior is successful. So think about that causal chain going back from the behavior or the results. If we just measure the results or just measure the behavior, we haven't measured those intervening things where we, as learning and development professionals, where we have the most leverage. One of the best examples I can think of, I was just sharing this story with somebody. Uh, I designed a, a selling simulation for a sales organization, and the goal was to help people understand what it looked like when they applied the organization's selling model correctly. So they were able to go through a number of scenarios and see what the likely outcomes were when it was done as recommended and when it was done not as recommended. And as part of the rollout of that simulation, we went to the the sales leadership meeting and, and sat down with all the, the regional directors and the district managers to sort of get their buy-in. And their first response upon going through it was, we don't like this. We don't agree with this sales model. We're not going to reinforce it. And we're going to keep selling the way we always do. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you wow. laughed at that because believe me, I wasn't laughing. And and, and I'll tell you right now, I'm awfully glad nobody did an ROI assessment on that because at the end of the day, you can train people all you like. You can give them as many skills as you like. If the first thing that happens after you do that is their direct manager says, that's a lot of nonsense. We're going to do it my way instead. There's absolutely no learning initiative in the world that can stand up to that. Think of the Addy model, right? And then there's been complaints about it, but you know, in some ways it makes sense. So we analyze first. And then we design, we develop, we implement, and we evaluate, okay? So what's missing from that model? The human element is missing from the model. You really have to think about the organization, the context, the work context. Oftentimes, we focus too much on topics, too much on our learning objectives, and we don't think about the context that things are in. We don't think about the political elements. We don't think about the human aspect of it. And we we fall down on the job. I feel I have to say your story makes me makes me feel pain just racking through my body now because I can imagine what that was like. Well, sure. And, and these are mistakes you don't make twice. So, <laughs> so very, very much along the lines of what you just shared. Well, one of the things we're doing now, we're working with a, a large uh, 
a large global pharmaceutical company. And we are, in fact, working uh, with their sales team. But we don't make a single learning design decision without having sales leadership in the room because we need to be aligned. We need to be doing the things that they believe in because ultimately, as much as I love the learning team, the learning team is not the people who are going to be out in the field pulling this through. It's going to be sales leadership. If they don't believe in it, if they're not aligned with it, if they're not willing to reinforce it, it's ultimately probably not going to happen. And then all the measurement models in the world aren't going to change the fact that people don't have the motivation to actually follow through on it. And that, uh, that I I think is is where the the difference is and it's more complicated right you and i know this right it's all you know we we're in the learning and development field but we're also in the performance field and we know learning's not enough and we know learning measurement is difficult so let's even make it more complex now we're not just focused on learning we're focused on performance improvement in general i have not even begun to contemplate what it would be like to measure some of the things around performance improvement. I am, I am working on a, this is sort of, I uh, haven't really told the, the world about this yet, but um, uh, working on this, uh, uh, it's a new model called the performance activation model. And it has learning in there, but it also has a lot of other things like, you know, the behavioral economic notion of nudging and, uh, you know, context cueing and uh, memory accessibility and habits and a, a bunch of things that are, unrelated to learning per se, but are related to performance improvement. Um, and in some ways, our goal as L&D professionals is to create performance improvement in any way we can, right? We our biggest, our biggest tool is learning, but there's other tools that we should probably learn about, figure out how to implement those. And then our next task is to think about performance measurement in general. If you got the solution to that, Rich, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was just about to say, well, we may have to have you come back in a little while when, when this is uh, more fully baked, because I think people will want to hear about it. Okay, I'd love to. <laughs> As we wrap up today, Will, obviously we've, we've talked about a lot of things today, but people tend to remember the last thing they heard. So what what's the one message you'd love to send people away with from this conversation? Number one, it's hard. It's hard to measure. So have some humility about it. Number two, beware that we tend to measure what's easy to measure. We don't always measure uh, what is meaningful to measure. Did I say that right? We tend to measure what's easy to measure, um, not what's meaningful to measure. And uh, start wherever you are. I, I give people the picture of LTEM, the eight tiers, and I say, okay, where are you now? And they go, they pointed out, oh yeah, we're measuring a completion rates and we're doing the, you know, old fashioned smile sheets. I said, okay, well, what, what's one improvement you can make in the next six months? Oh, well, maybe we could use performance focus smile sheets. Maybe, oh, we have this new strategic program. Maybe we'll measure some decision-making competence. So start where you are, be honest about it. You know, maybe get an outside person to take a look and then think about what you want to improve. You don't have to do everything. If you think you're going to do everything, forget about it. We do not have the budget. We do not have the resources. We do not have permission. Um, but do whatever you can to make it a little bit, a little bit better because our goal is to get better information, better feedback loops, um, so that we can be better professionals and make our learning as effective as possible. Well, I think that's more than one thing, but maybe that's an illustration of just how complex this topic is. Yeah. I can't count, Rich. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Will Tallheimer, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Rich, it has been my incredible pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Real Impact is produced by Performance Development Group. 
for more information on us, please visit our website at www.performdev.com. Thank you.